Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to everybody about my favorite topic. Um, it, it's funny, I came to ice cream in sort of a backwards way. I was an early employee at Starbucks Coffee. There were 30 stores when I started with the company. I think there were 3,000 when I left, and I don't know how many there are now. But um, while I was there, uh, I, I was uh, just many things resonated with me. Um, one was this idea of a third place. So it's not your home, it's not your work, it's this third place. And while I was stationed in Portland for a little while, I was really moved by the community spirit that I, I experienced here. And I could see so clearly this idea of bringing to life that idea of a third place in a whole different way through ice cream. And you know, you gotta get your coffee because you need your pick-me-up, you have to get food to survive and eat, but ice cream is just all good. And I could see it being this place where you could run into your neighbors, you could spend time with friends and family, and all over this really positive thing. Um, so that's what inspired me to wanna open an ice cream shop in Portland. Um, in 1996, I was out looking for real estate and working on my business plan. And, um, you know, my dad had gone bankrupt when I was in college running his own small business. And so I just got really terrified of that idea. Um, uh, you know, opening an ice cream shop in rainy Portland, Oregon um, seemed crazy to most people. And I think they talked me into the fact that it was crazy. So I, I kept my day job and went on to work at a many a variety of fortune 500 companies but always carried this idea around with me and i was able to move back to portland in like 2009 um for love and uh it was the kind of the stars aligned that my cousin moved to portland to help me start the company and 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 we we sort of um took flight from there we were a food cart to start and um shortly thereafter opened a, a brick and a mortar um I, I cashed in my 401k and sold my house and had a garage sale to scrounge together the money. And um, and we were sort of off and running. We only ever planned to have one store. Um, and here, 10 years later, we have 25. So things have um, really kind of taken on a life of their own. But always having that community aspect and community gathering place at the core of, of everything that we do. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I actually took a note there because it seems as though that sense of community is really what pulled a lot of people through, you know, last year's pandemic and, and the residue this year. But um, that sense of community tends to be around ice cream shops and food. Um, interestingly, that's, that's quite the sacrifice so far as just funding this all yourself and jumping in. Um, what, what at the time kind of led you to believe that this is going to be something different? You've mm -hmm. had that kind of experience with your dad and, you know, ice cream shops, will ice cream shops be successful? There must have been something there that kind of said, no, this is worth uh, making the sacrifice for. Yeah, it was fascinating to me because people ask me that all the time. Like, how did you know this would work? Why Why did you feel you could sell your house and um, cash in your fro and K and put everything on the line? and I I just without a doubt in my mind knew that that this was going to be something special for the community and um, I was so driven by that that I I went forth I, I think as many entrepreneurs do you know kind of jump off a cliff and figure out how to build a 
uh, parachute as you're flying through the air. That's what it was like for me. And um, and I also just felt like, gosh, if you know, 15 years later, I'm still thinking about this. I should take a chance on myself. You know, I, I could always go back and get another job if I needed to. I know that's available to me. Um, but this just just was always there as my North Star and I could see it so clearly. And and I knew that this idea could be of service to the community, which is um, which is something I always wanted to do. And, you know, I, I looked into following a career in politics or nonprofit. And um, I always came back to business being a way that, you know, business should be at the table helping um, solve our society's issues. And um, and I know this sounds grandiose, but I think ice cream is one of the best ways to do that. Absolutely. Tell me for the visions for that first store and perhaps some of the processes of making ice cream and flavor development, uh, was the uniqueness in flavor always ingrained uh, from the very beginning? You know, um, yes and no. Um, so Tyler, my cousin Tyler, um, was working at a used car shop. I don't know if he told you that last time that you all met. And um, he um, had been studying business and living in China, and he came back to do a death in the family, and he was just cooking to help people kind of ease their pain, people in the family, due to this um, fellow that passed away. And during that process, he realized, like, I don't want to study business. I want to be a chef and I want to go to culinary school. And as you can imagine, our whole family thought, that seems like a terrible idea. <laughs> and um, and I said, oh gosh, I better help him. And I said, well, you can live at my house while you're going to culinary school if you want, you know? And, and he said, well, what are you doing? And I told him I'm working on this ice cream idea and he would not let it rest. Like he was writing recipes, tasting, testing them with his friends, he went to the Goodwill and got an ice cream maker, and so he was constantly making ice cream. And I just kept saying, you know, Tyler, I think I don't know how to make ice cream. I think we need to hire someone who knows how to make ice cream. So I don't think this is going to be the best fit. Plus, you know, if I'm going to go down in flames, I don't want to bring my family down with me. So let's, um, you know, it's, let's just hold off on that idea. And he said, you know what, Kim, I'm moving to Portland and I will help run errands. I'll be the official errand runner for Salt and Straw. Um, but I just, I have to be part of it. So he moved into my basement and kept making ice cream. And when you know it, we pretty quickly realized like, oh, he's pretty good. And um, so carrying through this idea of community involvement, um, we started meeting with different people. Um, Olympia Provisions, who's one of the top charcuterie houses in Portland, in the world, and arguably. Um, uh, Woodblock Chocolate, um, The Meadow, The Salt House. Um, we would meet with each of these people because we were learning how to make ice cream and we would incorporate their philosophy into the flavors we were making. And as you can imagine, as you're doing that, the flavors reflect that in a really unique way. So it's very different than um, sitting in a room by yourself and coming up with a flavor. So usually um, the reason our flavors are can be interpreted as somewhat different um, are because of these people that we've met and collaborated with or because of these ideas or stories we want to tell. Um, it's never to be weird or outlandish. Um, that's the inspiration behind it. And so it's very, 
very much grounded in this idea of community. It reflects that community. When we opened in Los Angeles, we started from scratch and came up with a new menu reflecting that local community. And in San Francisco, and we just did the same in Miami. And so we try to carry that ethos with us as we move forward. And we think it provides this really great inspiration for what we come out with. I, I love that concept that every flavor tells a story or has a personality. Mm -hmm. um, were you, do you balance the kind of traditional cookies and cream uh, and the turkey dinners? How, in a soft <laughs> case, what percentage are the standard traditional flavors that you know, you know, most people love versus some of the ones that are a little bit more outlandish? Yeah, I mean, we don't have a formula for it, but we definitely stand back and look at the menu and make sure that there's something for everybody. So there's something for, the folks who want to try, um, you know, a new adventure. And then there's something, you know, I, we have a really good vanilla that, you know, you, you can count on. Um, so there's, there's an array of flavors and kind of think of our menu like an album, you know, that, that you would, um, you know, some songs are your greatest hits and some are like challenging you and make you think and, some maybe make you cry because it brings up a memory of the past. And so we, um, some make you dance and, sh you know, shout from the rooftops. So that's how we think of our venue. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. I remember we had a store here in St. Louis where we made a cucumber and mint sorbet. Yeah. We put it out on the outside sign and all these people would come in and go, wow, that's incredible. Can I have two scoops of cookies and cream, one scoop of chocolate? And I was like, well, I mean, it's, it's bringing people in, I guess. <laughs> um, so tell me, so the first store is up and running. What, when did the, the, the goal or, or the, uh, the achievement of one store morph into multiple stores? <laughs> it's funny because when we opened our second store, my friend said, well, I guess you can take the girl out of Starbucks, but you can't take... Starbucks out of the girl or however that statement would go. I, um, you know... <sighs> That there was this um, coffee shop on the corner of Lovejoy and um, or Kearney and 23rd in Portland. And back in the mid 90s, um, all the windows opened to the street and it, people just poured out onto the sidewalks. And I can remember sitting out um, at the tables with Thomas Lauderdale, who started Pink Martini, and we would smoke clove cigarettes and talk about how we were going to change the world. And um, we would run into everybody. And he introduced me to half the people of Portland there. And it really was that epitome of a community gathering spot that I was inspired to recreate through ice cream. So shortly after we opened our store on Alberta, that location came up for rent. And that location had fallen into disrepair. It was really quite sad, but I remembered what it was like. It gives me chills even talking about it. And I thought, you know, um, if I'm going to really be about this, I need to be about this. And I told you I sold my house. I even had a garage sale to get that first store open. I sold my golf clubs and my scuba gear. I had nothing. My credit cards were maxed out. So I thought, okay, we're going to open this second store because it's true to our mission. We have to. Um, and we talked our friends and family into giving us some money and, um, and we got open. And, um, you know, both locations, I remember driving from one shop to the second a couple months after we had opened and I could see across the street like this mob of people. 
And I mean, I was so uh, honored and happy to see that response, but mostly I was like, that's it, you know? And, and we were hearing stories of people getting like marriage proposals and job offers and like this sense of community was unbelievable. And uh, that's kind of, that, that, that sort of lit me on fire. And so, you know, we opened another store in my neighborhood and then we were invited to meet with this woman named Joan who owns Jones on third in LA. And she wanted to serve our ice cream and Tyler and I were just laughing because we're like, how in the world would we sell in LA? We were so primitive, you know, we're making ice cream in our back room. And, but we just fell in love with her and we're so inspired. And so we said, yeah, we'll figure it out. And we started making ice cream for her locally in LA. And that sort of organically led us to opening a store there. So things just happened very organically. Um, and my neck was on the line because I had a bunch of bank loans <laughs> and I had gotten to know um, some folks at Park Riley, which is an investment firm. Um, for many, many years, we had been talking and meeting and, um, you know, I, I finally just said, you know, maybe if you guys wanted to invest, I could sleep at night. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, because we were, it's, it's you know, over leverage, we, once we opened one store in LA, we had to open a, a few more to make it all work. And, and so they invested in us and that came with it, this level of, you know, a more strategic approach. Um, about a year later, my um, mentor and idol, Danny Meyer, who started Shake Shack, um, came to us and also wanted to invest. So those are our two investors. And, um, you know, they've really been helpful collaborators on, you know, working out in our growth plans and how we want to approach this. So that's, that's awesome. the story. So tell me, leading up to, let's say, early last year, how many locations did you have? Uh, we had 21. Um, were you making ice cream in a central location or was it regional? Where, where are you making mm -hmm, ice cream? Regional. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we made ice cream in California and in Oregon. Okay. Um, and is there a location where you're making ice cream in one of the stores or is it a separate building? No, no, we um, we have a full-on kitchen that we make our ice cream in, yeah. And are you still batching? Are you using continuous? Yeah, so we have uh, five-gallon um, ice cream makers, so we're making our ice cream in. I mean, we, we change our menu frequently, and so, you know, being able to make ice cream in small batches is important to allowing us that flexibility, but it's hard to keep up. <laughs> but it does kind of give you that kind of, you know, almost hand-spun kind of true craft ice cream experience, which is very true. Um, so with all of this on the line and 20 stores and things are going very well, what's the mentality, you know, when uh, the pandemic rolls through and uh, perhaps concerns? I mean, you're based on the West Coast. A lot of focal uh, for the pandemic was East Coast, West Coast. Um, tell us a little bit about how you've kind of navigated that process. It was it was terrible. I mean, it makes me tear up right now thinking about it. Um, the 23rd of May is the day that uh, that we shut down everything. Um, it was fascinating, you know. If if I could step back and watch what was happening, it it we were almost 10 years in. It had taken us 10 years to build this company and. I was on the the phone with my board nonstop, and um, 
we made a decision that we would shut everything down. So we got on a company-wide call and it lasted 10 minutes and they shut the doors. 10 minutes. We stopped making ice cream. We laid off 90% of our staff. You know, I had worked so hard to avoid the path my father had been on. And here we were, you know, facing uh, ultimate demise, <laughs> as far as I know. Um, so it was it was really awful. You know, we, we um, were in growth mode, so we were quickly running out of money. And... Um, and we make ice cream in small batches, high volume, so people are literally on top of each other. Manufacturing facilities were hot spots, and we had no interest in being a hot spot <laughs> for COVID. So we had to just rethink everything. And uh, we took, uh, you know, a month or so to do that and then started to march forward again. Yeah, I, we, I mean, it's, it's very easy to kind of feel the passion that you have, not only for your product, but for the people in the process. It's just, I don't think so. Um, so, so in that kind of process of reopening, um, when, when did Miami happen? Because in that, <laughs> you basically opened up a store almost on the other side of the country. Well, so we had planned, um, you know, we have stores up and down the West Coast in every major city, and um, we had planned and announced that we were opening in Miami long before, um, long before the pandemic. As you all know, um, once you have leases signed, uh, it's, it's very hard to back out of them. And so uh, we spent a lot of time, uh, well, here's what happened. First, my board stepped forward and said, hold on, we're going to fund you. You know, we're going to help you uh, get through this moment. And, you know, I, I always say to entrepreneurs, like, pick your investors based on your values. Because when the cards are down and your back's up against a wall, uh, really their true colors are going to come, come through. And I just thank God that we have such great partners um, you know, there was no blank check. Sky was not the limit, <laughs> but I knew I was going to live to fight another day. Um, and they were there on the phone day and night with me, um, trying to figure this out. So we got really clear about, you know, what we were going to do with that money and, and how we were going to prioritize things and how we were going to go about building back the company. And then we were, you know, nimble and we faced the real facts of what we could and couldn't do um, and, and put our plans together and started to reopen our stores and hire our team back. We've hired back over 500 people, uh, which I'm very that's what I'm most excited about um, as I face this next chapter in the pandemic. And once, you know, we were able to prove that we could operate safely at our kitchens and our shops, since the pandemic hit, we've had exactly one transmission at work and we know exactly why it happened. We put in really, really careful protocols for manufacturing and for um, serving. And uh, once we felt like we had a good, good handle on um, uh, safe and um, sustainable future, 
we started to look to the future, uh, the, the actual future again. Um, and I had some calls and emails and texts from some very ancient, anxious landlords <laughs> where we had leases signed in um, California and Washington and most of all Miami. And they wanted to know, are we going to, you know, deliver on our promise here? And um, so we slowly started to talk about it as a team and how can we introduce our brand in a new city across the United States during a pandemic. And we were able to get comfortable with the idea um, and, and engage with those landlords as our partners to put together a plan that made sense and made us feel, you know, like we could achieve it. Um, gave us a bunch more time, obviously, to make it happen. And um, and so we we moved forward and we just opened a couple of weeks ago. Um, so we opened two stores there in Miami. And you've opened four shops since the pandemic. Two were in the new market. Um, so are you back up to full kind of all stores operating again? We have one store that will not reopen. It's in a food hall. And um, we're just not able to to make that work. So we're uh, so we're letting that one sail away. But the rest of our stores, yes, are all up and running, and they're doing well. Fabulous. Well, some questions coming in. Um, Amelia asks, after you and Tyler got started and saw success in your first two shops, what was your most important hire for expanding the business? What jobs did you take off your plates in order to focus on growth? Great question. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. It's one that I still struggle with 10 years later. Um, I think the two, well, there are three most important roles for us um, as we built the company. We're first uh, a head of operations. I have a marketing background. And so having someone who could set up our, our team and our um, and our stores to operate, you know, with a with a real sense of um, safety and security, um, and, and to invest in that culture was probably the most important hire. Casey Milligan, who's still with us today, ten years later, um, uh, is that person. Um, and then the two that I probably have struggled with the most are um, finance and HR. So, you know, I don't know what level people are at on the phone, but, you know, I used to stay up and, like, take care of my QuickBooks between, like, 2 and 4 in the morning <laughs> when I had some spare some spare time to, you know, catch up on the finance side. And um, that did not set us up uh, to be successful, you know. I mean, I, I, I wish I would have brought in a higher level talent um, on that front sooner because, Gosh darn, if it doesn't pay for itself. Um, you know, I really believe in carefully growing and don't, you know, I think you can burn too bright too fast, but um, that role, and then of course, this seems really stupid to say, but HR. Um, you know, I worked for Howard Schultz really um, early in my career, and so he's a friend of mine, and he flew to Portland once and toured with me. And when we got to a meeting, it was very early in the company's history. And he's, I said, well, what do you think we should really be focusing on? What we're, you know, what do you think we're missing? And he said, oh, Kim, you just got to focus on HR, pull your HR house together. And I can remember saying to him, like, I don't even know what that means. You know, it's such a foreign topic. And he said, all the more, get, get on that. So, um, so those are the three areas that, 
um, I think are most important. Operations being first to answer your question specifically. Um, great, great answer. Alejandro asks, uh, how do you find investors? Um, sounds like a startup approach, but uh, it's a lot of you know a lot of people who want to get into the business who have that passion. Um, is it? Do you find that kind of proving yourself first makes it easier for investors? Uh, what was your experience? Yeah, I mean, I I have never done the speed dating approach, you know, where you go out and meet with a bunch of people and then pick someone. And I think it's great to do that, and it works for a lot of people. But I've always taken the approach of getting to know people. Um, hey, Benjamin Ernst, we've met before. <laughs> um, uh, uh, we've gotten to know our investors over a number of years, like two to four years. I got to know these men, their men, these guys, um, and I was introduced to them, you know, through friends. And so they would tour stores with me and I would reach out to them over the years to ask for help and they would generously help on anything I needed. And so I got to know what level of value they were going to bring to the business and they got to know um, what's really going on within our company. You know, like what are they asking for help about? What is hard for them? You know, and I just like that because then it's sort of like, it's all crystal clear to everybody. There's no hidden surprises, or at least there's fewer than you might have if you speed date. Um, and again, at the end of the day, to me, it was just about values. Like, do we have the same values? Um, and uh, I just, it takes me a long time to get to know that, you know? So I, I got to know them over a number of years and and then, um, and, and then when they decided to invest, um, you know, we put together a traditional agreement and they have a great attorney and all that stuff. So, um, so that's how we did it. Yep. Um, Nathan asked, do you focus group new flavors? No. Does Tyler come out of the basement and say, try this? <laughs> that will just not fly. I spent enough time in focus groups at Starbucks that I just hate them. Um, I hate them. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. We're a small enough company that you can try something and know if it works and do it differently. I, um, we don't, we don't do focus groups. I, we've done a little bit of research from here, here time to time. And I think that can be helpful uh, to learn what people think. Right. Um, but not about flavors, no. Uh, and so Benjamin, obviously you've got a previous relationship or friendship with Benjamin, hopefully. Uh, what's the right size for salt and straw? Where, 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 where does it feel comfortable now and where do you see it going? Um, the right size in terms of the number of stores. I guess, yeah. Or a size of store. We're about a thousand square feet. Um, we, <laughs> um, uh, it's interesting. I feel like, um, and even before the pandemic, I felt like the days of opening thousands and thousands of retail locations are over. Like that's just not the model going forward. Um, and people just access products in all kinds of different ways nowadays. So, uh, you know, you can see if you follow us that we have more of an omni-channel approach with different ways that we sell ice cream. Um, so I don't think, will ever be like a Starbucks where there's 
stores on every corner, um, you know, I want to keep that more of a special experience. Yeah. Uh, Nathan asks, when and how did you start to shift from an ice cream brand to more <laughs> of a lifestyle brand? Is it about transparency of your values? Interesting. That's actually a pretty interesting question because, you know, the Ben and Jerry's back in the day kind of transformed a little bit from great ice cream to, hey, these are some of our core values. And it's true, you do get that um, in your in your social media posts and your website and so forth. Um, has that always been integral balance? Yeah, I mean, I when I was a little girl, I um, thought I was going to be a political speech writer. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading Peggy Noonan's book and um and so I I'm just just personally really um moved by making the world a better place every day when I wake up and um and I, I think I learned over the years that my place to do that is within business and I think a biz, I think, like I said at the start, I think business has to be at the table. It's like government, nonprofit, business. We've all got to be there together to figure this out. And and I don't think it's kind of like a uh, let's give a donation or let's, you know, we've got to incorporate it into the way we operate so it's really sustainable, whether it's hiring a diverse population and promoting them to the way you purchase, um, the way you build your stores. Like I, um, I, I just think it's it's it has to be part of how we operate because it's what it's what will make us successful in the long run as businesses and it's the only way I'm interested in in doing you know doing this so uh, I think it's more interesting and fun and it's central to who I am as a person so um, so I don't know that lifestyle you know it's interesting to hear the word lifestyle brand because. Um, it kind of makes me cringe a little bit because <laughs> uh, we don't like I want to be about great ice cream and a great experience. Um, but I like how you tied it to transparency of values and um, and I'll, you know, be the first to admit that's hard nowadays. Like anything you put out into the world gets really um, picked apart and it can be easy to want to kind of hide um, and not put yourself out there. So it's a constant struggle to, you know, make sure that you're living those values and, and being open about it. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> What's your favorite flavor? Um, strawberry honey balsamic with black pepper. Oregon I strawberry. Be, I knew it wasn't going to be something simple. <laughs> well, Oregon strawberries are really, really, really hard. Um, they, they have a hard time making it in this world because Oregon is so cold and stormy and, you know, we barely have a summer at all. And so when we get them, they're really bright red and super delicious. And um, and so we use Oregon strawberries when we make that flavor and it reminds me of a warm strawberry. And um, uh, Danine asks, and this is, might be, uh, do you ever mentor smaller creameries? Um, I, ha I sure have. Yeah, we don't um, we don't do a lot of mentoring, mostly just because um, I have three small children and we're growing the, the, um, this company and I'm kind of holding on for dear life right now, um, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, but uh, I, I certainly do take calls and, and um, 
and have done some of that over the years. We won't give your cell phone number out. Don't worry. You won't get it. <laughs> My uh, eight-year-old might answer it if you do. So you'll see what, how much help that is. Mara, right here in St. Louis, Clementines, do you see uh, expanding your kitchens nationwide? How does a co-packer sound to you? Is that something that you've looked at before? Yeah, we both, yes to both. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know the answer to that yet. We just brought on a new head of supply chain and manufacturing who has a lot of great experience in that. So, you know, our first step was just to prove that we could operate in a market um, off the West Coast. And then um, after we prove that, we'll figure out, you know, what the demand is and how we want to um, fulfill from there. But for sure, we're considering all of that. Which leads to the next question from Stacy. Can you describe your logistics distribution network, i.e. transporting ice cream between kitchens and scoop shops? How does that logistically work? You know, we're really primitive in everything we do. <laughs> uh, we're not sophisticated and fancy. Um, hopefully we will be someday soon. But we have, for the most part, we have our own crew that drives, um, drives to our stores um and and services them and we're luckily we're really high volume so we keep them really busy on a daily basis we um, produce in small batches and deliver daily um for the most part to our stores awesome hey this is a great question from bonnie because i've got in trouble before by saying that soft serve used to be the red-headed stepchild of the uh, ice cream industry <laughs> and i've stopped saying that even though i said it uh, but Bonnie asked, pre-pandemic, she visited the food hall location in Portland. It was unusual flavors of soft serve ice cream. Do you see a future in soft serve? I do. I personally love soft serve. <laughs> um, I, you know, and uh, that that is the store that we've closed down. Um, gosh, one thing I learned in my Starbucks days is um, it's really hard to do one thing well and even though soft serve is ice cream it's different um and so having the bandwidth and the mind share to really go after that at this moment for us um is just you know we're not doing that right now but um but i personally love soft serve and um think it should have its day in the light well I, there's a lot of retro soft serve places opening up Mm -hmm. um, a lot of a lot of chefs are now buying single, uh, you know, countertop single flavor soft serve machines and doing soft serve as, as the garnish to their dessert. So um, you can do soft serve now isn't the soft serve that was on the end of the all you can eat buffet. Yeah, that's right. But I do have to say somebody's got to come up with a new soft serve machine because those things are torture. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there should be a few suppliers on. Let's uh, yeah, let's I would think. Let's get some collaboration going. <laughs> uh, we've already answered that one, Alejandro. Um, any other questions before we sign off uh, on the chat here, uh, Kim? Awesome to spend some time with you. The the passion that you have for the brand and the industry is almost palpable. So it's, it's wonderful to be able to kind of you know uh, connect with someone. And again, you know, I, I say it all the time. Uh, that the process of a lot of NICRA members and people looking to get into the business, you know, they see brands like Salt and Straw and 
it, it's so polished and well done, but, the, but you, you and Tyler were in those trenches, the same trenches that a lot of our members, a lot of people go through. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of hard work and scooping and sacrificing. Um, and there's great value in knowing that, you know, the salt and straws of the world, um, you know, came from that foundation of hard work and vision and passion and community. Um, if you could go back, last question, if you could go back five or 10 years in time, what advice would you give to yourself and what would you tell yourself and why? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I usually answer that question um, by saying that uh, to not take advice. Um, <laughs> I um, Because everywhere I turned, especially that first year when I was trying to get going, everyone told me I couldn't do this. Everyone. Landlords, insurance brokers, equipment suppliers, I can tell you, and uh, security system salesmen, <laughs> everyone I talked to said I couldn't do this, um, or I should do a slightly different. Um, and so my best advice is not to take advice. Um, the other thing I would tell myself, though, that I'm really coming to terms with right now as I come out of this pandemic is, um, and I think we as a society could really um, focus on this. And I think our industry could really help with this. Um, and that's just to let the fear go, like let it float away. It's there. We know we're, we're creating three contingency plans for every problem that might arise, but don't live in that place and believe it. You know, I, I, I feel like our society is so divided right now. And, you know, whether it's our politics or race or religion or if we mask or we don't mask or everything is causing us to be divided right now. And we have a chance, I think, as an industry to come through this and play a role, a healing role for our society and, and be a place where people can come together over something that is really joyful and good. And you don't know, you know, what profession, um, you know, people are standing next to each other in line from every walk of life and they're there to try the ice cream. And I think it's an honor to have that opportunity um, to, to play that role. And so I think we should all be asking ourselves, like, let's not squander this. You know, what can we do to help build back our society and our communities and our neighborhoods? What can we do to be really intentional about that? Um, whether that's on a personal level or, you know, um, more broadly in the city where you're located, we're asking ourselves this question every day. And um, and I don't think we should stop until we feel like we've answered it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the one thing, if any industry has had the chance to kind of give people a little less respite and a little bit of, uh, you know, equality, as you said, standing in the, in the line at the ice cream shops, the, it might be the great equalizer, which, mm -hmm. is, uh, which is a great to have a role in that process. Mm -hmm. uh, Kim, where can people find out more about Salt and Straw? Oh, well, gosh. You know, we're social media. Our website is saltandstraw.com. And um, I don't even know my social media handle. I'm so lame. But um, <laughs> saltandstraw.com salt would be the best place to go. 
Awesome. Well, again, thank you very much, Kim. It's been an honor to spend some time. And uh, if ever you need anything from the National Ice Cream Retailers Association, we're, we're here to help you. I will. Don't say that because I'm famous for, for following up on those offers. And right back at you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk to you very soon. Thanks. Bye.